The audio content of this podcast may not be suitable for all audiences or listening locations. Explicit language, situations, and viewpoints may be expressed that may offend certain listeners. Those listeners may piss off. Hello everyone, it is Monday, Monday, Monday. And we are doing yet another podcast because we had to go run some errands. And so I am the Fat Man Farmer. And I'm Wee Wild Woman. And we are going to discuss some of the things that you should do or not do when you first get property for a homestead. And this is coming from things that we should have done and we didn't. So we're not taking our own advice or what we learned the hard way and you learn from our mistakes. So the first one, we Wild Woman's going to be reading them off, but I happened to be discussing it with her right before we logged on, and it is observe your property for a year before you really make any big improvements or changes. And this is really, really, really hard to do because you're so excited to finally get property. Maybe you were living in suburbia, maybe you were in an apartment, maybe this is your first time having property. But don't make any major decisions, major improvements before you sit there for a year and observe. And I'll tell you why. Now, with ours, we already had barns and structures and some of those things. So we weren't able to, you know, we didn't build when we first moved in. But you want to observe where your waterfalls, where you have washouts, where's the high points, where are the low points, where are your high travel areas, where are your low travel areas, and start designing around that. Um, you, when I say you want to watch for a year because you want to get all four seasons, how is it, is it super rainy in the spring, is it really uh, windy in the winter where's the wind coming from all of those things can help you better design your barn so if you have a a three-sided like run-in barn for cattle or horses and you face it into the prevailing winds during winter it's really not going to do a whole lot because it's going to get filled with snow the same way is if it's blowing rain in springtime it's going to get all muddy and sloppy in there or does it is this the area slopes or is it going to get filled with water from runoff um just some of those kinds of things can help you not make type one errors and when we got the property we did make some of these mistakes not necessarily with buildings um most of our buildings were like pallet buildings so it's for sheep or goats or pigs so it wasn't super big and if we had to tear it down and rebuild it it wasn't that big of a deal now you start putting up pole barns or bigger run-in buildings, then that's going to be a little more to take down. Uh, we did build a three-sided barn out in the very back of one of the pastures, thinking that we would have animals go back there far enough away from the main barn. But the problem is, if they were out there, we had to walk all the way across the pasture to see it because we didn't orient the opening towards the the gate so you had to walk all the way out there to see if any animals were in there um we also made it out of billboard tarps thinking that you know that would be they they sit out on the billboards all the time yet we didn't factor in the wind and unless you stretch billboards tarps very tight 
the flapping constantly is what wears them out. Um, some other things that was kind of a lower area, so it did collect water. Um, you know, just just little things like this that would have helped us had we observed a little bit longer. Um, I think that might be it. Oh, fencing. So don't put fencing in low spots because it washes out. Or don't put posts in the low spots because they'll get saturated and either rot faster or the ground gets wet and then it gets more loose so the posts lean. Um, you know, some of those kinds of things. I'm trying to think of some other things that were, you know, weather related. You know, if you're doing a barn, where does the sun come up in the in the winter and the summer where's the longest parts of the day so the winter and summer solstice where is your sun coming at um, at least for our house in the middle of the summer our back door which is you know faces east west and it the sun just beats down on it and that side of the house gets super hot so you know, sun coming in through the windows, the back door, which is metal, gets super hot. We ended up putting tarps up, or uh, shade cloths, just to keep that back door somewhat cool. Um, you know, had we watched the, the weather a little bit longer, our front porch, where we have our sunroom, in the summer, it is shaded by all of the trees, which works perfect. And then when all the leaves fall, the sunlight comes in and heats that room up, um, sometimes 20 degrees or more so it's just the orientation of where the sun is and and those kinds of things so before start building or doing any kind of major projects start thinking about those things so what do you have for number two lee wild woman trying to do everything once immediately well let me go back did you have any comments about the weather or things to think about when you're building or putting things in How about this one? Putting water troughs underneath your uh, edging of your building so that whenever it rains, they automatically fill in versus having to um, drag hoses around and fill them up. So that's something to think about is if you have long water troughs, put them on the where you would have gutters if you don't have gutters or just the, the eave or the edge of the, the roof line. All right, so... So your number point two of don't try and do everything all at once. This is again one of those lessons we did not follow, and it's you're excited to get all your your animals and your trees and your bushes and everything in, and you've got to do fencing and you get overwhelmed. And this is exactly what we did. We, well, I, I should say we did that here. When we were in Indy, we had chickens, ducks, rabbits already, and fish. So it wasn't like it was a, a, a bunch of new stuff when we moved here. But we got sheep. We got goats right away. What else did we get? Um, livestock guardian dog. Mm -hmm. Jack came to live with us. Um, and then we bought a bunch of trees. And we bought, you know, wanted to put gardens in. And we were so stretched thin that we really weren't putting a focus on doing what we should for each one of those. Had we gone back, we should have made a solid chicken coop, made solid fencing for keeping the chickens in, keeping them safe. Made a 
good fence for the goats versus just letting them roam around because we learned the hard way about fencing. Um, you know, the guard dog was great. He, he needed to learn around our property because he had been at his other property for the, his whole life. So this was a new thing for him. Um, he didn't really have too many issues when he first came, did he? But we, we wanted to do everything all at once, and the garden suffered, the trees suffered. We planted the trees in the wrong place because we weren't there long enough to realize we didn't want the trees in certain areas because of that was grazing area. Um, just a lot of things that we were so excited, let's do everything that we could possibly do at once. Versus settling in, getting the home situated, and building on a year of watching and keeping what we had going. Um, what are some things that you think we learned, like the alpaca goat incident of 2017? What was that? When we got all oh, of those rescue yeah. goats and rescue alpacas. Yeah. yeah. We didn't know much about the alpacas, and then we got goats, and then the goats, we went from having like... 10 or 12 goats to 30 goats within a year and then the sheep population went up and we kept getting more chickens and then we started having issues and we were pulled in a lot of different directions at the same time and add something every year or maybe not every year add something once you've mastered that particular aspect so you want to start with chickens start with chickens if you want to start with a big garden start with a big garden but master that one aspect get it going so that it's very easy to maintain it's a very fluid system it doesn't take a lot of energy every day you have a good working system with that then add one more thing then master that one then master the two together then add one more thing and you know it does take time and build your homestead that way but in the same aspect, if you do everything all at once, you've got a lot of issues. Um, at least we did. You know, maybe you, you can do this. Maybe you have the skill set. Just starting out, not having some of these animals and this much land and everything, it, it was overwhelming. You know, we went from having no grazing livestock to having 20 to 30 the first year. Well, what are they going to eat all winter? We didn't know what their hay consumption was. We didn't know what kind of grain they needed or feed. Um, what the volume, I guess I should say, not what they needed, but how much they needed over winter. And even still, you know, we can guesstimate based on our numbers, based on previous years, but sometimes it's a harder winter than others. Sometimes you have more grazing land. Sometimes there's a drought. So you it takes time to develop those skills to know exactly how much you need for your animals from year to year, from situation to situation. Um, what do you think? What did we do? Did we get too much stuff all at once? And you're always there. Just you, we couldn't do it without you being there. You do a lot on the farm. That if it was just me and I didn't have you helping, so like when. She goes off and is, you know, at uh, 4-H or is sick a few times that she's sick or she's off with senior boss doing something and I'm left to do all the chores by myself. It takes me three to four times as long 
as the two of us doing them together. And, you know, that needs to be factored in. If you don't have, you know, junior farm boss help or you have kids that are small and trying to do all these things, having a two-year-old, three-year-old takes a lot of your attention. And then trying to add animals and, you know, emergencies when animals get out or animals are sick, that really starts to add up on pulling you in too many different directions. You throw in, um, you know, bad weather. You throw in a tree hits the house. You throw in a power outage. And it can be overwhelming really quickly. So my advice is start small. Do one thing at a time. Get that mastered. You know, if you're doing fruit trees, they take a while to mature. But there are ways to speed that up. Buying them more mature. Or, um, you know, those are more expensive. But you can buy those on trees on clearance. Or swap out with somebody who has larger, more mature trees. Or graft um, trees onto existing wood. So, you know, we have native plums. You can draw, draft lots of things. Graft, not draft. Graft lots of things onto those plum trees. Or you can take an apple tree and graft four or five different varieties onto one rootstock. So there's ways around or speeding that up so you don't feel like you have to get the trees in the ground immediately in order to start producing fruit. Because I can tell you, more than likely, they're not going to be in the spot you wanted them in four years from now, and then they're already established and you can't transplant them. So, you know, just think about those kinds of things. So what do you got next? Getting a large number of animals all at once. <laughs> Kind of what we were just talking about of the multi-species. You know, I'll give you an example of the goats. We had uh, about 10 or 12 goats. Everybody got along. Um, We did not have any male goats at the time. There's a deer. Um, So we didn't have to worry about separating them and babies and then separating the babies and the moms from the, the, the bucks again. And we went to got a bunch more animals all at once. Then you have different housing because not all animals get along. Uh, the alpacas did not like the, some of the goats. The goats kept trying the fences. The new goats jumped all the fences, tore the fences down, and the population exploded quickly and more quickly than we we imagined. So it it's not the same of raising four goats and 40 goats. There's a big dynamic difference of that, of how much they eat, how much they poop, how much they drink, how many meds they need. If you're keeping them in more of a confined area because you have so many, then you run into disease issues or illnesses or parasite loads because they're so they're on top of each other. And so getting a lot of one animal or even a bunch of animals all at one time trying and it produces or it gives you more uh, more issues than it would be with a smaller animals or a smaller number so you know with pigs we have you know you can go from two or three pigs and if you have one boar in there and those three pigs each have 10 you're up to 33 pigs in three months three weeks three days and they can do that three times a year so then you go from 33 
to 66 if those first ones didn't get bred, or you could go up to even more than that if they that boar breeds some of the smaller, younger ones. So you could get exponentially more pigs real fast if you don't know what you're doing. And then what do you do with them? Are you going to process them? Do you have somewhere to take them? How much feed is that going to take? How much room do they take? Are they all trained to the same fencing? Will your fencing hold them all in? Um, I can tell you, that many pigs that fast start to stink real quick. We have a friend who went from... Oh, I think when we met him, he had 10 or 15 pigs, maybe. He's at... Well, about a month ago, he was at 100. And now he's at 140. Yeah. They get out of hand real quick, um, and that's because his boar keeps getting out. No matter what he does, he gets out and he rebreeds all of the pigs and the daughters and the sisters, and it, it just it's gotten out of hand, and he doesn't want to get rid of that boar. Well, then I guess he's going to have more and more pigs with nowhere to, for him to go. So, you know, those kinds of things, think about it. The same way with goats. Goats usually only kid once a year. Usually, sometimes some of these the meat goats will breed more than that. Our sheep only breed once a year. Now rabbits, you can breed very fast. They, I don't know what their gestation cycle is, but I want to say you can have three or four litters a year at least. And you know, between five and fifteen rabbits each litter, that can again go exponentially. Do you have cages for them all? Do they all get along? How do they get along? Are they going to eat each other? Are they going to fight? Diseases. Feed. I mean, you know, rabbits are... You need to keep them contained because everything will eat rabbits just like chickens. And then they, your population can explode as well. So, you know, if you're wanting to go from a breeding trio, so two females and a buck, do you have enough cages? How much is that going to cost to build new cages? And then being able to keep everybody separate. Who's going to, you know, are you going to butcher them? Are you going to sell them? Is there a market for your particular type of rabbit? You know, people get into this thinking that, oh, well, I'll just breed these two and then start selling them. Well, if you can't get your money off of them, and especially where Facebook's not allowing you to sell livestock or animals now, where are you going to sell them? How are you going to get rid of them? Who's going to buy them? Uh, I've met quite a few people in my consulting and traveling that, you know, they just think that because you have it, people will be banging on your door. That's not the case. They don't know you have all this, you know, rabbits or pigs or whatever you got to advertise it. you got to market it. Sometimes it's word of mouth, but if you're a homebody or you're busy on the homestead because you have 47 animals that you <laughs> got all at once, you're not out there marketing and talking to people and trying to move your products. So, just because you have them doesn't mean that you have an outlet for them. We learned that that with the sheep, that you know, we're going to get wool sheep and we're going to sell the wool. Well, not everybody wants raw wool. You're going to have to pay to have it processed, and that's money out of the pocket that you may or may not get back if you sell the processed wool. So, you know, we had pie in the sky, you know, dollar signs when some of this was going on, and it, it didn't come to fruition like we had thought it would be. We thought everything would go perfectly smooth, and we would 
always get the top dollar for everything. Not always the case. So, what else can you add to that? Is that just me talking, or do you have any input? You basically cover it all. I do? Well, sometimes you have some unique perspective of too many animals all at once, like, you know... Uh, if you have too many animals, you have to worry about different burping cycles in the night, how they burp, what direction they burp, what is the appropriate time for them to have their baby. That way you can know if it's stuck or something is wrong. That's another point that's in there. I think we're going to come down to it later about knowing your livestock, knowing it before you ever get it. We got alpacas knowing almost nothing because they kind of fell in our lap of, hey, do you want these seven or eight alpacas? Well, we don't really know much about them, but sure. So within 24, 48 hours of kind of researching, not really about alpacas, we, you know, agreed to this transaction. Looking back, I don't know that we would have. Alpacas, in my opinion, have lots of issues. I thought they were going to be this big, poofy, cuddly, you know, thing that you could just go hug on. They hate people. They don't like people at all. At least these guys didn't. Um, you know, they're difficult to shear. You have to have specialized combs and cutters for them. Uh, you have to shear them, otherwise they get too hot. They, have, they always stick their dirty, nasty feet in all your water troughs, which they've been walking in poo, so now you have parasites in your water. You have to change that out regularly. They're dumb. At least the ones we had were dumb. They had just a death wish for everything. You know, they would sit there, and because they couldn't figure out that there was an opening in the fence that they needed to walk through, they sat there and cried and whined about it to try to get to the other side. You had to literally walk them out there and push them through the opening for them to go through it. Not a gate, just an opening in the fence. So... Would you, I mean, like, what else have we had that we've gotten a bunch of that just, oh, the fish. Fish, guinea keeks. Guinea keeks have a death wish. Well, they know us talking about necessarily death wishes, but when we get a lot of an animal, the issues that come from it. So we stocked our fish pool, I guess we're going to call it, fish pond. It's an above ground pool that we put fish in and use aquaponics. And we stocked it way too densely and didn't necessarily plan for that, which the waste build up faster than the plants could clean it, ended up killing a bunch of fish that way. Um, you know, that was something that too many, too much in one confined area. Um, same way with when we get a bunch of goats and they're having to be in a stall for a while because don't have the right fencing or you they're a bunch of goat kids all at once so then you have moms and babies in there that's a lot of mouth that's a lot of mouths to feed and it's also a lot of poop to shovel and do you have somewhere to put them when you're shoveling the stalls all things to be considered when you have a lot of animals all at once um you know if you get a bunch of animals put them on a pasture that was fine for 10 and then you go to 30 of them how fast do they eat it down? Do they eat it down so fast that it can't regrow uh, before they graze on it? Uh, meds. Meds are another one when you get a lot of animals. You can get vials of vaccines or antibiotics. Well, you used to be able to. 
that, you know, one bottle might treat your 10 guns. Well, now you have to buy a bigger bottle and more expensive or multiple bottles, and, you know, that increases your price um, of upkeep and maintenance on them. Um, you know, shearing. We went from, oh, I think we were comfortable between 50-ish to 100 sheep. We're at 300 plus right now, and shearing them takes a long time. We're still not done shearing, and we started what May, which we should have started in March. Um, and you know, 10 to 15 sheep a day, only being able to shear on the weekends—that's a lot. When you had 50 to 100, that's maybe two weekends. We're stretching it into months worth of shearing, and that's only if the weather cooperates. So you can get into trouble pretty fast. All right, what do you got next? Planting trees in the wrong places. And we kind of went with that one earlier. Um, you know, trees are one of those type one errors that once you put it in the ground, it's really going to be difficult to move it once it starts getting established. Uh, we planted. Uh, I know it was like 2,000 trees one year, trying to put them in some of our big open pastures to let them grow so the, the animals would have shade. Well, we didn't necessarily think that they would eat all of them down to the ground. So then we tried to protect them with different fencing, and we cheaped out on the fencing, so we lost all of those trees because the, the goats and the sheep kept eating them down. Um, for fruit trees, we put them somewhere where we thought would be a good spot, but then goat apocalypse happened and they ate everything to the ground. So, you know, putting them in the right places for water, for sun, um, how often are you visiting these trees? How close are they to your buildings? Uh, one thing that I wish we would have done early on was put fruit trees in the chicken yard, which we didn't do. And the reason being is that they will control a lot of the pests of any fruit that falls to the ground and can help break your pest cycle um, for different, like, cotter moths and things like this for apples and whatnot. So the chickens can be a benefit there. Um, maybe not have put them in where we have what's called Forbidden Hill. It's a very it's a fairly steep hill, and you can't get any kind of motorized equipment up there. So if you're harvesting apples, and you have several buckets or bins of apples that's walking those up and down the hill um, to bring them down to, to the house or to where you want to process them, I'd like to put them in a more flat, open area so that you can go get a wheelbarrow or a wheel cart or something in there to make harvesting your fruit and bringing it back much easier. Uh, same way with pruning. You can't get in there with a ladder real easy because it's such uneven ground. Um, we did put it after we planted in Forbidden Hill we ended up planting and making a separate orchard on flat ground and we spaced them appropriately so each tree has roughly 15 feet in all directions so that we could, you know, drive the zero turn up there and bow in between them. Or we could bring a 
cart or whatnot to go in there and harvest the fruit and then be able to wheel it back out. Much easier on flat ground. Um, then we put the chicken coop around there so the chickens could go over there. The new Taj Mahal. Um, what are some other trees that were things that we found that we could have put better or done better with trees?
What do you got next? Assuming you need tractor or equipment immediately. So, we thought we needed a tractor and equipment, which we didn't have one for four years. We only had a push mower. I'll tell you, push mowing a seven acre pasture is not fun. Especially when it's so grown up it clogs up the mower. So, uh, that's where we needed the livestock. Let the animals work for you. But a lot of people, as soon as they get a property, they need to go spend twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars on a tractor, and really, it's not needed. You've got a lot of other infrastructure that you can do before you get a tractor, and you may not need the tractor. Everybody thinks, "Oh, I'll get the tractor. I'll use it for this, 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 this." And chances are, you use your tractor once or twice a year when you just start out, unless you're haying or bush hogging or some of those kinds of things really don't need it. And if you're getting grazing livestock, they'll bush hog everything for you. Um, the only reason we got the tractor was we needed to do hay. Uh, we have access to 35 acres that we don't own that was pretty much all, uh, it's not hay ground, but it's, it's pasture. And we were bartering with a guy, so he would get half the hay for haying it for us, and then we would get the other half, so then he could sell it or use it for his animals or whatever. Well, one year he said he's not doing hay anymore, and we didn't buy hay, we didn't plan on that, so we needed to hay this quickly, so we had to get a tractor and get the equipment to do it, and other than haying and maybe loading mulch, we don't use the tractor at all. And it's been sitting for, how long has it been sitting? Three years? Maybe? Maybe. Maybe longer? And for, that's an expense you don't really need to have if you're not going to be using it regularly. And then what would be better is renting a tractor. Lots of the, the farm stores will rent tractors. Lots of equipment rental places will rent it for a weekend. If you're going to till a garden, rent the tractor and the tiller for a weekend, do your garden, and then offer to till other friends and neighbors for 20 bucks, 40 bucks, whatever, and then you can pay for the tractor um, for free, basically, to do yours. Um, maybe that works for you, maybe it doesn't. So, you know, we're probably going to be getting rid of all of our equipment and just renting one when we need something. You know, that's a maintenance cost, fuel cost, uh, upkeep, and then if you're having to finance it or payments on it, that's that's an expense that you really could be using elsewhere. So I think we looked at a twenty. I already know it's going to end up being about fifty thousand dollars for the tractor and backhoe and some of the pieces uh, several years ago, and it was going to come out to be like thousand dollars a month or something so what could you use a thousand dollars a month um, elsewhere could that be buying fence could that be paying down your mortgage could that be buying hay for your animals instead of having to go hay you know a thousand dollars a hay goes pretty far depending on how many animals you have so don't think that you need to have a tractor right away just because you have property. Uh, you know, a lot of times you really don't need it, and it's not the best investment for you. There's a lot of other things that you can be 
put money into. Do you feel that we use the tractor? The big tractor. Use the big tractor. You mean like use it at all, or? Well, I mean, what could we be using the tractor for that we're we're not currently, or do we have a need for it? We don't really need a need for it. I mean, we could move logs with it for the sawmill, but we now have a winch for the truck, so that solves that problem. Uh huh. We want to get some rock on different driveways and paths, but most good delivery drivers for with dump trucks can slowly spread that over your drive and you don't really need to spread it any. Um, loading mulch into a dump trailer and moving it from our lower pasture to the upper one, again, that might be a rental for a one weekend. Or we have a friend who wants mulch for their garden. We tried to work out a deal where they can take as much mulch as they want if they'll deliver a couple of loads up to our property. So cost us nothing. They get the mulch for free. We get the mulch where we need it moved without having to rent equipment. Or barter some services for you know what you need. Where you, I run a couple of different barter groups, and you know you don't necessarily have to pay for these things. There's lots of people who have who have bought the tractor who are not using the tractor its full potential, and can go do your stuff for you for maybe it's. Uh, some of the meat that you harvest. Maybe it's for eggs. Maybe it's for chicken. Maybe you help them out on their farm. Lots of different possibilities. So that's a big expense that you really don't need and really need to think about. And I really wanted a tractor when we bought the property and I wanted one and I could give all kinds of reasons on how we would use it. And really we didn't use it nearly as much or for any of the purposes that I thought we were going to. So moving on. What else you got? Putting fencing in the wrong places. So, we put fencing based on squares. So, right angles and where the direct paths are and these kinds of things. Or where we kind of just put fencing randomly sometimes. And looking back, we should have put fencing on contours. So, maybe our fence line isn't straight. But we're not going up and down in valleys, which woven fence does not do very well in valleys. Um, it doesn't hold its stretch value. I don't know how you want to say it. It, it doesn't bend as easily. So uh, another thing that we would have done is any of our laneways between pastures. We have, we have it's nice to have laneways so that you can isolate our drive a vehicle and not have the animals in the way. You can uh, keep them separate. A nice thing we would have, should have done was put all of our laneways at 16 feet, or maybe slightly less than 16 feet. And the reason for that is, one, equipment that large that you can get through, so balers or cutting equipment or whatever on a tractor, but also you can make catch pins or separation pins in any of your laneways by using cattle panel. So you can stretch them between two T-posts and make a, a, a 16 foot square if you need to do meds, if you need to do checking on animals, loading animals, all of those kinds of things. Um, we didn't do that. And here's another one that we should have done that as I'm saying this, I thought about your T-posts should line up 
in that laneway. So you shouldn't offset them so that when you're putting your 16-foot cattle panels, you have something to tie to versus in the middle of the fence, which is more flexible. Um, what are some fence issues that we've come across that have been issues? You mean woven wire or electrics in that? When you come up with either, what have we run into with either cases where we should have thought better about where we're putting things? good one. So we run our pigs with a single strand of hot wire and we assumed that you know when we ran the sheep in there with the pigs the pigs would stay in their area the sheep would not go in the pig area. Now the sheep for some reason and the damned alpaca want to go into the pig area even though there's nothing in there for them to eat they still want to go over there. And so, inevitably, they always jack up the electric fence um, going into the pig areas. So now we've started running a woven fence to keep the sheep and the alpaca and the cows and the horses out of the pig areas when we're rotating them because they'll always jack up the fence. Once the fence is jacked up, then the pigs get out, and you got to chase all the pigs back, and it becomes a big issue. Um, or the sheep get tangled in the electric fence and get shot, and that's an issue. So, you know, one is putting fencing going up and down valleys. One is bracing your corner posts if you're doing squares or turns. Um, age bracing. I thought, we don't need that. That's just extra expense. Oh yeah, you need it. Um, making sure that the wooden posts, if you're sinking posts or logs or whatever you're using, are settled in the ground before you stretch the fence. So if you're putting in new posts, don't stretch them the same day that you put them in. Let that ground settle for a bit and compact around the, the post. Otherwise, your poles sag as you stretch the fence. Always stretch the fence is another one. Um, putting gates where they're appropriate. Don't put gates in low spots because then that's just a big issue. Uh, or ways to go from one pasture to another without having to go around seven pastures to get back to a different gate. It's always nice to have two gates in one pasture, one in, to be able to cross it easily. Um, what are some other things? If you're putting woven fence with electric fence, you need to have a sufficient gap so that animals will not push the woven fence into the electric fence and then short everything out. And, or it electrifies the, the woven fence. And if your woven fence is touching your metal gate, then it electrifies the gate so that when you have to try and go over there to it, you get shocked going through the gate trying to fix the electric fence. Lessons learned. <laughs> um, let's see. The metal step-in posts for single-strand or double-strand electric wire is better than the fiberglass ones. 
my opinion. But those little step-in metal flanges on there usually fall off within a year or two. So then you have to use a hammer to get them in the ground. Oh, if you're using T-posts, you'll, you'll naturally have to have a T-post pounder, which we use the manual. We don't use one of the hydraulic or gas-powered or tractor ones. But we recently discovered a T-post puller. And let me tell you, I don't know where we were, why we didn't get one of these seven years ago. It has made night and day difference of changing fencing or adjusting fencing. Uh, there's a, we used to just wiggle them until they were loose enough, then use your back and legs to pull them out, and that makes you sore, very sore. Or there's a hack you can use where you uh, use your T-post pounder and the tabs, uh, or the little nubs that are on T-posts, and kind of rock them back and forth and using leverage. Much easier. Once we learned that, that was you know night and day difference of having to pull them up using legs and back. But we recently found a T-post puller, and man, that's much easier. I pulled 200 posts in like two hours. That So it went way faster. Where before it would have taken me days to pull all those out. So. But if you fit your poke, you're, if you think about where your fencing is going and you put them in the right places, you don't have to pull it up. <laughs> um, sometimes people will tell you not to use trees as fence posts. Because then your wire can end up inside of the tree. This is true. And as the tree grows, it stretches, bends, pulls the fence up. We use trees, so... We just now know that if we're cutting any trees on the property, which may or may not have had fencing at some point, to cut about five foot off the ground and leave the, the stump that big, only because we've hit nails and wire and everything else in these trees, and it really messes up your chain on your chainsaw. Um, what can you think about fence? other things that when you're putting in fence always stretch fence already said that not all animals will respect the same type of fence this is true so you need to go animal appropriate fence so chickens and ducks and guineas guinea keats will go through woven wire the 4 inch square woven fence wire chickens will go over that ducks Ducks, for the most part, won't. We've not had the ducks go. They're too fat to fly over. Um, geese won't go through them, but predators can go through that. So for for chickens, we use 2x4 um, welded wire or chicken wire. Uh, cows, at least our cows, won't respect... Um, woven field fence alone at 48 inches, they'll jump it. So you have to put uh, barbed wire or a hot wire on top of that. The, bar the hot wire for our system even has to be high. It's just got to be there. Yes, well, it has to be hot for once her to learn about it. That Once she learned that the, any wire that's on top of a fence may be electric, may, have, may hurt you with barbed wire, 
she no longer jumps fences as long as those things are in place. So we have some areas that the wire's not even on or attached or even it's in, like not even ground and it's nailed into trees at some points. So we couldn't electrify it. But she doesn't know that. She just sees a wire and says, that burns Betty or shocks Betty. We're not going there. It bites back. It bites back. Um, goats, full-size goats can scale a 48-inch fence fairly easy. So could our dogs. So can the dogs. Dogs will climb cattle panel. Sheep will, or, uh, goats will climb cattle panel. Um, sheep will go under woven fence if it's not adequately stretched and your posts are not set to the right size. Um, now, not all sheep will do that. Some of the bigger commercial sheep won't test the fence. Our little Shetlands, who are smaller sheep, they'll go under the fence if the grass looks greener on the other side. Um, what are some other fencing that you need to think about when you're doing your fencing? Costs. Um, Don't cheap out on it. Yes, yeah, so unfortunately, more the more expensive fencing is usually the better fencing. So we buy red brand number 10 gauge top and bottom wires um, in 330 foot rolls and that has worked for us now they do make a 330 foot I want to say it's a 12 gauge or it might be a 14 gauge fence that fence sucks it's so easy to, to walk it down for the goats or the sheep it's not as strong um, that number 10 wire is much stiffer so it's not as easy to bend to walking it down or going under it um, the electric wire we get the thicker gauge electric wire only because it's more visible to the animals the thinner stuff they don't see it as well um, t-post uh, we do six foot t-post for the most part um, that'll allow us to get that top wire for the cows and goats um, and dogs. But uh, there are T-posts that are cheaper material. They're thinner. They are not meant for livestock. It's more like for gardens and things. So learn your, learn the differences. There's lots of different you know, YouTube videos and these kinds of things about fencing and what's the right kind of fence and the right kind of material so do some research um cattle panel i mean everything's gone up in pricing lately you know inflation and whatnot and there's always going to prices are going to go up but when we started we could get a 330 foot roll of the good fencing i want to say it was like 120 dollars and when it was on sale, it may have been 109 right around that area. Uh, and then, well, when I say sale, they have a sale on it. Then you can get bulk discount for buying 10 rolls at a time. And then you can use like a friends and neighbor discount from Tractor Supply and get another 5% off. Um, so, you know, we'd stack all of those extra discounts when we get fenced, which is something you should probably do as well you're going to start bitting fence plan your fencing to see about getting your bulk discount 
Um, even if you're not necessarily going to use it right then, you might use it later. Um, and T-posts come in bulk discounts as well, as I think uh, wooden fence posts do. So, uh, plan those kinds of things. But now, I think a 330 foot of the number 10 gauge top and bottom red brand is like 169 and this is only like five year difference probably t-post used to be 253 bucks and i want to say they're like five bucks now so you know look for those kinds of, of discounts and deals or if you can find it good quality used fencing we have some fencing we found out in the woods that's probably 20 30 years old and this is the old school fencing and it's heavy duty it's the gauge of almost uh, cattle panels so you know that's something to think about if you can find older fencing that's maybe a barn find or something else and clean up on some of those kinds of things well we are going to have to take a break i will be back shortly we are now at our first stop and we'll continue on to our next stop once we get done here and we got lots more to go on our list of things so be right back Alrighty, we are back we had to stop at the auction house and pick up our most recent purchases we are on our way to our, one of our other favorite stores, Gordon's Food Service. See what kind of deals we can get there. So, we Wild Woman, we were talking about fencing. Do you think we covered all of the the issues with fencing and planning of fencing? And, oh, here's one. You can use Google Earth Pro, the software through Google, that you can trace where you want to put your fencing in with, through satellite imaging make a picture of where you think you want to put the fencing and it'll estimate how much fencing you will need it'll tell you about the perimeter that you wanted to use so we use this to get us close to how much fencing we need and planning for t-posts based on there's so many feet um, in between them so if you're wanting to know how much it, fencing it takes to fence in a one acre two acres or if it's an odd shape do the perimeter and um, draw the line and then you can look at the area of what it is so how many acres it will tell you uh, how many feet or miles the fencing is so just a tool that you can help guesstimate or plan um, we have all of our pastures actually mapped and color-coded and we know how much uh, acreage it is in each one and we kind of use that for planning purposes of where we're going to rotate the animals for grazing. So just something to think about. Do you have anything else on fencing? No, we pretty much have covered it all on fencing, okay? Um, you can cheap out on gates too. So, you know, when you, you get what you pay for, so the cheapest tube gates will bend if the rams hit it right or a cow hits it right. They can rust. Um, you know, you got to think of if you have smaller animals, can they get through the bottom pieces? We have lambs that will skirt through the openings, 
So do you need to have wire mesh on the bottom? Is it worth paying for wire mesh or could you um, tie wire mesh to the bottom of it? And if you tie wire mesh to the bottom of it, you're going to have sharp edges and then you're going to get poked in the legs and get your clothes caught on it. Ask me how I know. Um, anyway, okay, I think that's fences and gates. What do you think? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's all, but every time I say that, you come up with something. I do have another one now. See? If you're doing electric wire for your fencing, put in isolation pieces or gates with the um, spring handles. So if you ever do get a short, you can isolate different areas so that you can track down the short versus having to go and walk every single connection, every single post, every time you have a short somewhere. Um, it does help cut down on the amount of time. So if you know that pasture one, you can isolate it and you pull it off of the, the wired network and you still are shorting, well then you know it's not pasture one cut out pasture two and all of a sudden your short goes away somewhere in pasture two is your short and it allows you to cut down some of that guesswork and legwork to save time because it can take an entire day to walk different pastures just looking for a short and it can be super easy like you know it's touching a metal fence or the pigs have pushed up dirt on it or it can be as complicated as you have a bug or a worm underneath one of your insulators that has shorted it out. Come on, car, let me over. Alrighty, I think we're officially done with fence now. You sure? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> okay then, we're moving on to putting gardens in the wrong places. Um, so many people, when they put their gardens in, want to put it in way in the back, like, you know, the back pasture, the back, you know, pretty far away from the house. And typically you want to put your garden where you walk by it every single day to see if it needs watering, if it needs weeding, harvest your fruits and vegetables out of it. And, you know, putting it back in, along a back fence line or the back part of your, your suburban lawn you don't go out there nearly as often as you should. So this is part of that planning as well as you won't know how to design things until you set stuff up and been there for a while. But think about going out and doing morning chores, then you know you want to walk through the garden or walk back past the garden. So maybe you harvest some things that on your way back to the house or maybe you're harvesting the fruit that have fallen on the ground that you don't want to eat or is windblown and you can give it to the chickens on your way letting them out. So you want to have your garden be fairly close to the house, easily accessible, and someplace that you visit regularly. Um, you know, ours is somewhat like that. It's on our way to the barn. It's somewhat close, but then the same aspect. It's not the easiest to get into and go around. But that's where the garden was before we moved in, and we just adopted where that placement was. So if you have a choice, put it fairly close and easily accessible, both to water, you, and possibly livestock. So if you're weeding your garden, or you're changing over plants because your lettuces and things have bolted, then, uh, you know, 
being able to throw those weeds to the chickens, to the ducks, to the other livestock makes it waste into a resource or put your compost bin by your garden so that you can just throw all those things easier in there versus trucking it to the back part of the, the property. Um, I mean, that's kind of all I got. That, what do you think about gardens and planting? And, like, when you walk out, would you like to be able to pick sweet peas as you walk out nibble on them going in and out? Or what are some other things? That your gooseberries or raspberries as you're walking along? Putting raspberries or gooseberries or some other kind of berries along a fence line so that as you're walking out, you can, you know, harvest some of these and have a snack. Just something to think about. I'm good. That was, that was about all I had on that one. Okay, not learning about livestock before you get it. That's a big one of, you know, we learned that, you know, about all the things that, about alpacas and shearing them and their health and how they were difficult they were to shear um, then there is you know people who go and get baby goats and they have no knowledge I see so many times people posting in homesteading pages or you know, Facebook pages in the, in the different animal groups I just got these new goats what do I need to know well you probably should have known those things before you got them you know what do they eat what do they what do they need for shelters in this. These people get these animals with absolutely no knowledge of animals. Um, when we sell or you know, rehome animals, we ask lots of questions to these people, and sometimes they're not really ready for the animals yet, which is fine. We'd much rather somebody have a good experience with the animals than a bad experience. So... You know, have you ever had sheep before? Well, no. Have you ever been around sheep? Well, no. Well, let's go through some of the things that, you know, you need to know about sheep before you get these guys home. And do you have this? No. Do you have fencing? Well, no. We're going to put it up once we get them. That's kind of something you need to have before they come there. Unless you have a stall to keep them in while you're putting up fencing. But, you know, that's something to think about. Um... What do you think? What are some important things to know that people should know before they get animals? What meds do they need? What oh, very good, yes. Do they need, like, special care for their feet? So, like, food? yeah. So, um, one thing that, you know, do you need to trim their feet? Do you need to trim their hooves? Do you need to have a farrier? Which is a farrier is a specialized person to come and do uh, horse's feet. Hooves, not feet, right? Or cow hooves. Farriers do cow hooves too? Uh, I think there's a special kind because cows can have like certain abscesses or stuff in their hooves. So you're thinking more of the dairy cows, not necessarily the beef cows who are walking around. Probably. So yes, a lot of the dairy cows have a foot specialist who come to see them and trim their hooves. And it's mainly that they're not, they're usually on concrete floors a lot of times, um, just because that's how their barns and their milking parlors and all that are. Or they're not necessarily on the same kind of terrain that, say, a beef.
Alright, we are back for our final installment of this podcast. We are finally done with all of our errands and stops. Made some deals today. So, we wild woman, where were we at on our list? Well, now we are at training of livestock guardian dogs. Okay. So, the reason you get... So, not all livestock guardian dogs are the same. You want dogs that are specifically bred to guard livestock. Not all dogs are capable of doing this. There's lots of different breeds. Some of them are the Great Pyrenees, the big white floofy dogs. There is Anatolian. There is Kangles. There is... Oh, there's probably about seven or eight others that are specifically bred for livestock guardian dogs. They are different than farm dogs, and they are different than herding dogs. A German Shepherd is not a livestock guardian dog. It is a protection dog of your family and your home. It is not a protection of livestock. Livestock guardian dogs live with the livestock. They bond to the livestock. They like their people. They love pets from their people. But their job is to live and protect those animals and to not chase them, not hurt them. These dogs will lay down their lives for their their animals. So, when you are training them, you need to make sure you get them from reputable breeders, not backyard breeders. Anyone who breeds a livestock guardian dog with a, a chase hound, so let's say a border collie and an Anatolian, that means those two breeds are in conflict with their natural desire. One desire is to protect, the other desire is to chase. And the dog is constantly in conflict with its instincts. You want, if you're going to get a cross, they need to be livestock guardian dog crosses. So a Great Pyrenees and an Anatolian cross would be fine. But a German Shepherd and an Anatolian would not be. A Doberman Pinscher is not a guardian dog. So now that we've kind of gone into that, there's lots of pages and books and podcasts that talk specifically about livestock guardian dogs. What you want when you are looking for one is one that mom and dad has been on the farm with the pups and the pups don't leave until at least 12 weeks or longer. And mom and dad, mom and or dad, is there to train the pups and they are with the livestock since birth. So we learned a lot. Everything we did with our first two dogs, we did wrong. We did not let them bond to the livestock. We brought them in the house, mainly because one of them got parvo, and so we had to constantly watch them and nurse them back to health. Another part is, we did not, we assumed that they had had all of their vaccinations. They did not. So, we didn't ask that. We made the assumption. So, with that being said, you know, when you're asking questions about your livestock, like what um, of the breeder... What animals have they been around? Are mom and dad on site? What do mom and dad look like? Um, how long have they been breeding? How old they are? Um, so, with our first two dogs, they, we got two sisters from the same litter. That is a big no-no because they will fight. They, these our two gr- girls, Segan and Athena, or not Segan and Athena, Segan and Freya, they don't necessarily fight but there is some rivalry between the two of them, especially when I come involved because they bonded to me. Those are my dogs. I broke them. Um, they also bonded to the house versus the livestock. They did not um, live with the livestock when they were first born. We left them with Jack, who was our senior livestock dog, and he kind of 
hung around the house and patrolled, but he didn't live with the livestock. Those weren't his animals. So we thought he would train them, and they, for the most part, did not bother the animals. They, whenever they would go after a chicken or a duck, Jack would be there to step in and told them that was not okay. But again, they didn't live with the livestock. They lived around the house. Now, when you have get one from a breeder, mom and dad are living with the livestock with the pups, and they're also teaching the manners, teaching them rules. Uh, one of the things you want to ask is, are they fence jumpers? Jack was not a fence jumper. Both Segan and Athena are fence jumpers, and no matter what we've done to curb Segan their baby, Segan and Freya, sorry. Segan and Freya are fence jumpers, fence diggers, fence get-arounders. They are notorious for getting out. And their whole job, in their mind, their mission is to keep all of the cars off the road. They absolutely hate any car that comes down the road. Now, when they were free-roaming, we didn't have coyote problems. We didn't have fox problems. We didn't have skunk, raccoon, or groundhog problems. But because we've been having to contain them, since they all they want to do is be on the road, all of those animals, those predators, have started to come in. And so we got Athena. Athena came as four months old, maybe older. She sat there, she was with their mom and dad for a while. These were from breeders down in Monrovia, Henderson Farms. And we've been to their farm, we've seen their livestock, we've seen their dogs, how the dogs interact with people, how they act with the animals. And when they had puppies, that was a good fit for us. And we're getting ready to get another one, Aries. And the only reason we did not go to Henderson Farms again was because we wanted um, a male not related to her. And all of their pups come from the same um, male. So anything we would get would be related. So a livestock guardian dog, when training them, you want to curb their behavior early but not discipline. So you can say things like, no, drop it, don't, mine. And you say it in a very strict voice. Um, don't ever hit them. That's a, a big no-no as well. Now, they should do their job as protecting livestock without chasing it, without hurting it. They should not overly lick animals, shouldn't play with animals. Um, you know, we had Athena out when we were lambing, and she did not overly lick. She did not do much about anything other than help when she needed to help. And sometimes we mistook her helping as a negative behavior because she was only 15 months old at the time. And typically you don't allow them to be with livestock until two. She had demonstrated great behavior and we were kind of trusting her until she proved us otherwise. It worked out for us and... A couple of times she had, we saw her have a lamb in her mouth. Now, normally that is a big no-no, but we later came to realize she was trying to get the lamb to the mom. The lamb was crying, and she could not get it to there, like, by nuzzling it, so she picked it up and brought it to the mom, and that's when we saw what was going on. So we, we, we yelled at her, and we put her in her room and disciplined her, and then realized that we were in the wrong for what we were seeing. There was another time when she was um, licking a lamb. Or was it a lamb, or was it a ewe? I don't know. And that's another no-no, but 
it one of the the animal had an injury and she was cleaning the injury versus doing any kind of damage so that would help prevent fly strike and actually clean the wound out so again we saw her behavior as a negative but she was actually trying to help so with Athena and even the girls and Jack they have distinctive barks and you'll have to learn what your dog's barks mean and that's from spending a lot of time with them that there is a, a general I'm here I'm here to protect the farm everybody who's out there you better listen where they just kind of bark and run around, I don't want to say run around in circles, but they really don't have a fixed point that they're barking at. And there's another bark where they hear something, see something, and it's a directed bark at whatever it is. Don't come here. This is not safe for you. Then there's a bark of, I will kill you. I'm going to kill you. And that's usually when they are within predator's range and that they can grit to it. Um, with people, they have the same bark of, hey, you're not supposed to be here. You're not part of my family. Don't come any closer. And for the most part, they only bark at people. They don't ever chase them. They don't growl. They don't get aggressive. It's a warning. Don't come any closer. I do believe if someone were to grab or hurt or harm any of her animals, it would be a different story. What do you think? Probably. Now, sometimes when these animals bond to their people as well, they'll defend the people just as much as they'll defend the livestock, which can be horseplay or, you know, if you're getting too close to one of their people, they'll let you know. So with the girls, when we would take them to the vet, they were protective over me and they wouldn't let the vet come to me. I had to stay away from them while they were getting their procedures done because they thought the vet was too close to me and trying to hurt me. The same way with we they would do the same for her and protect her as part of their family. She used to play with Thorstason, the house dog, and get rough and play with ropes and, and things, and he would growl and, and he was playing, but it wasn't a mean growl, but the girls didn't see it that way. They saw that it was too much of an aggressive behavior, and it needed to stop. When Jack was around, Jack tolerated no foolishness. The goats couldn't headbutt butt heads. The rams couldn't butt heads. The chickens couldn't have disagreements. There were no disagreements on the farm whatsoever. There was no pecking order where Jack would get involved. Um, so far, Athena and Segan and Freya don't really care about you know goats getting into it or chickens getting into it. That's that's not their thing. Do you agree? Yeah, probably. Um, you know, there's lots of different ways to discourage the dogs when they're pups from jumping fences, which is uh, a tangle sticks, which is like a triangle that you zip tie to their collar. And when they try to jump or go under a fence, they get hung up and so they can't go any further. Uh, there's another one where you can put sticks on them so that they can't run really fast if they're looking to run and jump off over uh, fences and things. Uh, but once they get in their ways for so long, it's really hard, if not impossible, to break them of their bad behaviors. So when you see these behaviors, you've got to catch it early. And another part of this training is we're fortunate that we're around all the time. That we can see her, be with her, you know, night and day. While we're out there during the day, she's out and we can keep an eye on her. I know the Hendersons, when they train the pups... They take a different pup each day, and they put a, um, 
a leader line or a long leash looped to their belt or to their body and the dog is on the other end with their collar. Now what that does is it keeps them close, lets them be with the animals, but not close enough where they can't be uh, corrected for behavior. So they get to learn, they get to be around, they're seeing chores, they're seeing what's going on, and they're still in a contained environment. If you can't dedicate that kind of time to training them, that means the dog's locked up most of the day, which they sleep most of the day, but then they can't be out night with the dogs because you'll be sleeping. So there's a very small window where they get to interact with the animals. And their training takes that much longer. So I think that's a good reason of why and how Athena got to be with the animals before she was two. She had lots of hands-on training, lots of individual uh, uh, guidance. Um, they unfortunately have a short lifespan. So big dogs typically do. 14 years is, is typically pushing it. So you get two years of training and then maybe 12 years of guarding, more like 10 years. Those last two years, they get old, they get arthritis. So you need to start thinking about a replacement or um, an upgrade. Not an upgrade, but you know, when one goes retirement, you don't really want to have to wait two years before that next dog is up and going. You can have a lot of losses in that time. So while your main dog is still in its prime, think about getting its replacement and letting that dog train the, the replacement. Then you need to think about how many animals you have, how big of an area can this dog cover that big of an area with the amount of predator load you may have. Athena does really good with the sheep, as long as she's with the sheep. But then that leaves chickens and ducks and other things exposed because she can't be in two places at once. Um, you know, so that's one reason we're getting Aries sooner is one, we want a breeder, but two, we can have a backup training for having her be in one area and he be in another. The girls, Segan and Freya, right that time are broken and we keep trying different methods and means to keep them on the property and off the road and so far any effort that we've had has not worked so they either have to be chained or supervised on a leash or lead anytime we go anywhere in the, on the property and one it's not necessarily fair to them because we're the ones who didn't train them the right way but it also, we can't have them on the road chasing cars, getting hit, having the sheriff's department come. Luckily, we don't have any neighbors, and so their patrol area is about a square mile. And in that mile, we don't have any, anybody to complain that they're on their property, they're getting into things. Um, we've noticed that, at least in the group forms and people that we know and talk with, Pyrenees have a tendency to wander um, if they're bored or they don't have anything going on. If there's no predator load or there's not enough livestock, they'll go on walkabouts and they can go two, three miles wandering around looking for something to do. So they, they need to have a, a job. Um, otherwise, they get bored and then get into trouble. So, let's see what else. Um, we are actually... Whether this is just kind of additional information, but not necessarily to educate, but 
we're working on going to a raw diet for all of the dogs and the cats. We found that the kibble feed that we have been giving, it gave skin allergies, they had digestive issues, they just, it, it wasn't a good feed for them. And when we started switching them to chicken and pork and other meats and lots of eggs, they all have really nice coats, they put on weight, they seem to be healthier, they don't have stinky breath, um, unless they eat a skunk, that's different. Or rotten eggs. Oh yeah, rotten eggs. Man, they love some rotten eggs. Or pepperoni. <laughs> you don't give... The, the house dog's the worst one with the rotten eggs is the bad part. Man, he can stink up a room. So, you know, not everyone needs a livestock guardian dog. You know, if you've just got chickens and it's in a protective pen and nothing can get to them, maybe you don't need one. But you also have to have enough property for a livestock guardian dog. They are not going to be happy on five acres or less. Unless you have really good fencing and train them to fencing really early. Uh, one thing that we did was go around the perimeter with the girls and keep them in the fence and they knew where the fence was. The problem was, at that time, our whole property wasn't fenced in. So there were big holes and gaps where they could get out and go venture. And they'd go to the creek, they'd go to the trash lot next door, they'd go over to the cow lot, they went on walkabouts, and, you know, especially during the summer, they'd disappear all day. They were in creeks, they were in the woods, they were doing something. And then we'd hear them at night, or they'd come back for dinner. And, you know, right now with Athena, she's really good. So she's either in her cave in the barn, which is her hut that she's dug out, or she's with the animals. There's pretty much no other places that she goes. Um, during the day, she'll sleep most of the day. But period periodically, she gets up, she makes rounds, goes on checks on everything, checks on everybody. Pretty much walks the perimeter wherever the sheep are at that given day. Comes back, takes a nap. She'll get up and do it again. And I haven't seen how long she takes naps for it. Do you? At night, she sleeps with them, either in her cave, in her room, um, when she can go back and forth between the sheep or with them, or she sleeps out in the pasture with them, just right out in the middle. The sheep are getting used to her, but at first they all would run from her, and she's she's a dog, she's, she's not supposed to be here, but as they've started to realize she's not chasing them, she's not aggressive toward them, they're just like, oh, it's the dog. Now, when she runs at something, they all scatter. Or if she stands in a gateway and we're trying to bring the sheep in, they don't want to go because she's blocking it. So for those times, we just put her in her room, close the gate. She knows she gets a raw hide or she gets a treat or something, three or four eggs. She goes in there, has her snack. We pull the sheep in. And then she goes back with her sheep. Now, feeding your livestock guardian dog, that's a new one. Um... Once sheep and or goats or cows learn what the kibble is that they get, if they get kibble, they're going to eat it. And you have kind of a 50-50 chance of the dog tells the sheep to go away, and it's mine, and they growl and kind of nip at them. Sometimes that works. Sometimes the sheep aren't that bright, and they keep going, and they don't take a hint, and they may get part of the meal that night as being sheep or goat. 
So for the most part, all of our sheep will stay away from Athena when she's eating. Except for one ram. Mac or whiskey? Whiskey. Whiskey will go in there and no amount of growling, barking, or anything at him will get him out of that food bowl. So we have to feed her without sheep being around and not leave kibble during the day. So she gets a big scoop of kibble and her chicken right now at night or some sort of a, a meat source as we're transitioning her. She pretty much eats in what, 10 minutes? Probably. And then she wants to go back with her sheep. Or she'll hang out in her area. Um, once the sheep come in, we'll go put her over with the sheep when uh, it's time to put chickens up. So maybe an hour or two she hangs out separate from them. Um, need to constantly check them for ticks. They can get Lyme disease, which is hard on their joints. And uh, can cause other health issues. Um, they do not... Oh, never shave your dog. So they have dual coat. Well, Athena has a dual coat. Segan has a dual coat. Uh, Freya has a dual coat, too. Pyrenees have a dual coat, but they don't shed nearly as much, and they're a lot more fluffier, which is one of the reasons why we wouldn't get one, since we run our animals in briars and brush of the woods, and that dog would be constantly matted all the time with cockerbirds and burdock and all kinds of things whereas Athena has a much shorter coat and can be easily combed out so that's something that to think about some people will shave their dog in the summer because they get so hot but that that extra layer actually helps them cool themselves um, they usually will dig a hole or uh, an indentation or sometimes even a cave for them to cool off during the, the hotter parts of the day. Last year, Athena was all about laying in pools of water or stock tanks or any kind of water, mud puddle. She was in it and laid in it. And this year, we even bought her a pool. She's like, eh, I'll stick my feet in it. It's not so much as, as laid in it as she did before. I think it's because before she didn't dig her, like, caves in that. She didn't have a cave to get into, and that was her way to cool off, was get in the pools. Uh-huh. Um, now, Athena's parents actually have caves. I mean, they full-on tunnels under the ground that they get in and even bring some of the livestock in if they feel they need to be protected. So, uh, you know, digging holes is not a, necessarily a bad thing with them. Um, what else can you think about that they do not like other dogs on their territory? They see other dogs as a threat. So Athena played with Thorsten when she was in training still. She still likes Thorsten, but now they're separate. But, you know, sometimes people like to bring their little yippy dogs or, you know, family bring their dogs over for, you know, get-togethers or whatever. Your livestock guardian dog may not tolerate that very well. They see that dog as a threat to their livestock. It's not supposed to be there. So be wary of that if someone is to bring a dog onto your property when you have a trained dog. We have signs on ours to not enter the property without one of us with her, them. And this is because if a stranger comes up, that dog doesn't know who it is and it is a threat. 
if they are with us, then they're not a threat, but they're going to let them know they're not supposed to be there. So there's a big difference in their mentality of being with one of my humans that I belong to, my pack, and not being with us. And so if people come visit or delivery drivers or something like this, again, something you need to be aware of or think about that they view those people as threats. Threats to their home, threats to their pack, threats to their livestock. What, do you, what else do you think about? You're basically covering it and you're just asking me what random I don't know. I'm not random. Sometimes you think of things that I don't think about. Like Jack, when he was... Jack was a big floof and he came from a really good family. But he loves the UPS man. He used to get in the truck and want treats. And the UPS man and the, and the FedEx guy really liked him. FedEx guy would get out and play with him and, and, and love on him. And he never really barked at those guys. At, at first he did. And it was a, hey, what are you doing here? And as he got to know these guys, he started getting in the truck and getting treats and everything. And he wouldn't even bark at these guys anymore. And, you know... They would have to kick him out of the truck when he, they delivered packages. Um, so he, he was kind of a failed guardian dog. He was a good dog, but he wasn't necessarily the the A team on the, on the guardian dog scale. He was the best damn dog that we had, though. Um, I think that might be it on guardian dogs. What do you think? Probably. Are you sure there's not another idea that's going to pop into your head? I don't know. Not that I know of. Oh, yeah, there is one. See? I recently read that if you have livestock that die on the property, maybe natural causes or something like this, the guardian dog may take care of it for you. Now, it's not that they're eating your livestock. It's they're doing their job to reduce something that would bring a predator. So, uh... What it was, was a woman had a sickly goat, or sheep, I can't remember what, and she had been watching it. She didn't think that it was going to make it, and she came home, and either the goat or whatever it was, it got tangled in a fence and died, but the guardian dog had pretty much ate it all, and she was concerned that the dog was the one that killed it, and what should she do as far as training behavior... And some of the more seasoned people with dogs said the dog more than likely was taking care of that goat as far as removing it from the situation, which would naturally bring predators or carrion feeding animals like raccoons or coyotes or other things. So if it took care of it, then it wouldn't bring those animals to the property. Now, I kind of think that that might be, you know, thinking too much and giving it too much, uh, credit, but then again, I've seen Athena do some things that I wouldn't, we didn't teach her that she does on her own. Like eating the placentas from after a sheep and they don't eat it. Yep, that's one. Now, could it be just that it smells good and it's something for them to eat? Maybe. She doesn't fight with any of the sheep over it, so it might be if the sheep leaves it, she takes care of it. I have seen her herd the sheep all together in one pasture, though. So you got to think, we've got seven acres or more in some of these fields, and some of them are hills so that you can't see from one side to the other. 
and the sheep are on one side, you know, they're half and half, what it, you know, she can't see both of them, so she'll move them to one side or the other to be able to watch them all. So, we didn't teach her that, we don't, you know, didn't encourage that kind of behavior, but she did it, and so maybe there is something that, that they just inherently know some of these things to do, which I thought was pretty cool. Alright, I think that's it now. Okay, are you sure? I'm pretty sure. Wait, wait, wait. I'm just kidding. Feeding your animals and pets is... I'm not understanding your writing here. Feeding your animals and pets get what you pay for. Okay, so this is why we're switching off of um, the, the cheaper kibbles and things. We had three cats who have... Four cats, actually who had some sort of skin allergy, and we believed it to be a flea allergy. We kept treating for fleas and flea meds and flea dips and flea collars and spraying for fleas, yet the, the issue didn't seem to go away. We switched them to free choice kibble, but then giving them um, basically shredded chicken once a day to all the cats, and all of their skin issues are gone, I mean, for the most part. And we didn't do any other meds, no flea treatments during this time, just changing them up to having more real food versus kibble and grain and things. So we tried this. Thorstason, the house dog, had some skin issues as well. Um, he was always itchy and biting and things, but we never really saw any fleas. He kept getting flea baths, and he wasn't. we didn't see as many for as much as he was itching. And he was digging in his ears. He gets... Uh, chicken as well now, shredded chicken, and he stopped a lot of that. So, you know, buying the cheap food, when, when you have four, one time we had five, no, how many do we have? We have four now. Four very large breed dogs, so over 100 pounds each, they eat a lot of kibble, and that's very expensive when you're, when you're buying, you know, better stuff so we were cheaping out we were being jerks and buying them the cheap stuff just because it got too expensive to, to feed them all but we've been getting better deals and even raising our own meat just to feed them um, specifically we're going to start raising rabbits but some of our cull chickens or if we get a good deal on um, chickens at different sales like we just picked up when we were doing our errands today two 40 pound boxes of boneless skinless chicken thighs for $45 so that's 80 pounds of meat and they're getting maybe a half a pound to a pound each of shredded chicken when we cook it so we just throw it in the instant pot five pounds at a time cook it shred it and then put it in ziploc bags put them in the freezer and they get them at night um, Athena likes hers frozen actually it's hot out, gives her something to work on, that cold meat. Um, but they've all gotten much better and healthier and better coats. So we were cheaping out on the food. And that just doesn't go for, for them. It goes for other animals as well. So um, with the pigs, you know, pig feed is typically protein from uh, soy. And it actually changes the fat profile and the flavor profile of we didn't like that. Um, 
I guess I could describe it as we had solid pig fat that you can cut into cubes, like a cheese kind of texture. Or when we were feeding soy, it's a gummy, pasty, snotty kind of fat. It, it not very solid consistency, and there was a diff definitely a different flavor of the the pork. So you had I don't even know how to describe the the greasy the soy-based one, but I'll eat the pork fat when we have pork chops or or other things that are grilled because it's solid, it's good, it's tasty. Um, whereas I'd cut all that stuff off before. So it's not just the dog and cat foods, but it's you know your livestock feed and things. So when you buy the cheapest feed, you know they were for the longest time. Um, we there we were hearing people about their chickens not getting laying any eggs, and it's not just the time of the year. This this was across the country, multiple people all over saying that their chickens just stopped laying, and this they were pretty much all going with the same kind of feed: tractor supply, um, producer's pride. I want to say oh, there was another one, uh, Purina. Um, who made a lot of these feeds, um, they were saying that they stopped laying. As soon as they changed feeds to a different brand, all of a sudden they started laying again within a week. So if you had chickens and they all stopped laying and then you changed one thing and that one thing started getting you legs, makes you wonder if that's the cause that happened. Um, we don't buy pre-made chicken feed. Uh, well, we do, but we get it from our feed mill, and they custom make it. Or we make our own blend, which we have them mix up for us, which is two parts oats, two parts cracked corn, one part black oil sunflower seeds. And that can be fed to any of our livestock. Pigs, chickens, sheep, goats, horses, cows. So it's kind of a universal feed. We, then we give mineral supplements to each individual species. Um, but, you know, with that, well, I think I have another point about making your own feed. So when you cheap out on feed, it does go down the line and, you know, you'll see the impacts. Okay. I think that's it on the cheaping out on the feed. Would you agree that the animals seem healthier? They're not as crusty and not as many issues? Yeah, they do have nicer coats and do seem healthier. Uh, location of water sources and I think hot springs or something? I don't understand what you were trying to tell you. Okay, so where you put your water matters. So if you have one spigot and it's at the barn, come winter, you're hauling water everywhere or because you can't have hoses. Well, we're in Indiana. You can't have hoses in the winter. So that means you either need to bury additional lines three feet underground or you're hauling buckets of water. Um, so think about where you're going to water your animals. We like having the water come off the back of the, the barns or any of the shelters, so that's where our water troughs are. Anytime it rains, any kind of snow accumulation, even dew, if you have dew in the morning, you'll start collecting water in those troughs. And you know, that's that makes it much easier than having to fill them. So if you have pigs in the, you know, much further away from your barn than all your other animals, how are you getting water to them? 
How are you getting water to them in the winter? And think about those kinds of things of hauling water. Hauling water in winter sucks. Yeah, it does. Um, breaking water in winter sucks. So if some of your areas where you're watering them doesn't have power, that's going out there with a sledgehammer, hatchet, axe, baseball bat, something, and breaking up the surface of the water if you live in a freezing climate. Um, we've tried the whole salt water in a bottle. That doesn't work. Not here. Not when you're getting, you know, sub-zero temperatures. Uh, supposedly if you put make a salt water solution, put it in a plastic bottle, and put that bottle um, in your water troughs, it won't freeze. Or at least it won't freeze around that bottle and the animals can push the bottle down to get to the water. Yeah, that didn't happen here. It froze completely solid in the water here. Um, now, here's another one. If you have steps or something for your animals to get to your water troughs, they can stand on that ice. And if they can stand on the ice, they can fall through the ice. And they fall through the ice and they're cold and frozen wet coats, more than likely you're going to lose that animal because they might not be able to get out. We learned this the hard way. We had a big trough and we had steps for some of the sheep to get up because they, they're short in erosion. And, you know, around the trough it's, it's a low point. So the sheep, when it froze, got up there got up on top trying to break the ice to get to the water, fell through and froze in the trough. Then we had to chip her out, frozen. Let me tell you, a wet, frozen sheet waterlogged is very, very heavy. Um, so after that, come the spring, we put cinder blocks in the bottom of the water trough so that if for some reason they were to fall in, they have a way to get back out. So they have steps inside the water trough. And, you know, that's that allows them to be able to stand up and jump back out or at least get a foothold because the trough was two feet deep and while they're trying to tread water, they can't put their feet over the edge to be able to try and crawl out. It also gives a place to for the goldfish to hide. All of our big water troughs have goldfish in them, and that helps keep mosquito larvae, par you know, parasites out of there, algae from growing, um, and you don't have to feed the goldfish. Well, shit, there is still algae in those troughs. A shit ton of algae. There's a lot less than... Okay, which one? Uh, first off, reds, beddies, and there is still algae in that. There's only one goldfish in there. That's because they don't have enough... To, there's more food for them than they can keep up with. And Betty's, you can see the bottom now. Is that because it's low? No, because there's actually, I found four, three of them in there. Yeah, I put a whole bunch in there. Where'd you get them from? The pond. That was a while ago. The fish pond. Okay, anyway, we put the goldfish in there to help keep it clean. And some people are like, oh, they're going to drink fish poo-poo. They're going to get, it's bad for them. No, it's not. It just sinks to the bottom anyways. And so, you know, these, these animals will drink out of a dirty mud hole. They're not going to be concerned about fish poop. Now, we have never fed these fish. And they're going on five, six years. And they're pretty big. Now, goldfish, I didn't realize this. I learned this, um, I don't remember where I learned it. 
Well, they secrete an enzyme that limits their body size based on different conditions of their living environment. So, let's say you get a little fair goldfish and you put it in a goldfish bowl. It's not going to get much bigger than that. You put that same goldfish in a giant pond, a one-acre pond, it's going to get to be four or five pounds. Because goldfish are just a, a certain kind of carp. So... They will self-regulate on what size they need to be based on the, their environment. So um, we've gotten the goldfish from the pet store. You can get 100 goldfish for like 13 bucks. If you don't need 100, get 5 or 6 and you're good to go. And you'll only spend like a dollar or two. Um, going back to the water sources... So, if you've got hoses stretched everywhere during the warmer months, what are you going to do during the winter months? You also need to drain all those hoses because when they freeze with water in them, they will split and you'll lose all of your hoses or your fittings. Um, and we've even tried this and it doesn't work because it, it, it just doesn't. If you fill, you know, use your hose to water the animals during sub, you know, freezing temperatures, and then disconnect it from the spigot so that they all drain out, you will inevitably always have somewhere where there's standing water that clogs it up. And then you have to either A, wait for it to thaw, or you're just done for the year using those hoses. Um, we will try and stretch watering those areas with the hoses as long as possible to the point that sometimes it's you have to wait till 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon when it warms up enough to water the animals. You can't do it first thing like we normally do. Um, what do you think about What else about water? Oh, yeah. If you have goats, you either need to put the... <laughs> goats will inevitably always poop in their water. No matter where you put it, no matter how you put it, how high you put it, they will back their butts up to this water bucket and poop in it every single time it never fails sheep don't poop in their water cows yeah. don't poop in their water sheep do sometimes they will go up they got going up and backing their butts up to it for no other reason these goats have plenty of room there's no reason for them to poop where they're pooping but they'll go up and put their butts right up on the water and poop in it it never fails <sighs> And then they complain that they don't have any water to drink. I don't like that. It has poop in it. Well, you pooped in it. Really? <laughs> so that's something to be aware of, that if you've got water tanks or troughs for goats, you cannot have a permanently affixed one, or you have to be able to drain it regularly or something. So for goats, I would recommend smaller buckets. You know, a three to five gallon bucket um, for them. Otherwise, you're just dumping water all the time. And if they're in stalls or anywhere, then you've got to haul that water out. And it's a real pain. I've not seen the goats ever poop in the outside troughs. Like the ones that are behind the barn. Well, when we were feeding the goats like grain or hay, the one feeder that's close by we had had the water bucket in the corner over there. They would go to the side try to aim for their water buckets or they'll poop in their feed buckets. I mean, the, 
Goats are just like the worst. I know you like your goats. Your mother seems to like the goats. And I'm not trying to turn anybody off goats because maybe you guys really like your goats and your goats are different and special and not like our goats. But Our goats are assholes. Our goats suck bad. I, I really don't have... I mean, I do have some good things to say about the goats, but they're few and far between. And what would those few things be? They will clean brush up to six feet so that I can walk through the woods without having to duck or get caught in anything. Uh, the two milking goats will produce milk, and they're pretty decent at milking and allowed to be milked, so we get milk out of them. That's about it. <laughs> they're kind of personable. Lug is my only favorite. He's my favorite goat out of all the goats. Lug is our little weather. He was our, our 4-H project goat. And he's a fat little turd. And he talks to you. He likes pets. If he runs too fast or tries to jump anything like over six inches, he will faint after. He's a fainting goat. He, he, he's got some issues. He's a round little pudgy goat. He talks. That looks like the sheriff's department. I'm hoping that's not our animals out. Oh, shit. All right, I think we're going to have to go for right now, and we'll try and continue this later. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up. Those were not the sheriff's department looking for our animals. It was actually a marking company, but it had all of the symbols and lights, which looked like the... Uh, sheriff's department. So all of our animals are still in. Just wanted to give everybody a, a conclusion on this and heads up. So we are going to end this podcast for today, but we will continue with a part two sometime this next week. So we will talk to you guys later. I am the Fat Man Farmer and we Wild Woman is off doing chores or somewhere on the farm and we'll talk to you soon.